0: So scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew from into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went and from Jerusalem in Judah, and from beyond Jordan. This is the word for us today.
1: Well, uh, open your Bibles, or keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter four, a uh, passage that Stuart just read for us. Uh, Matthew is in the back quarter of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, it's the first of four stories from the life of Jesus where the words might turn red for you or not depending on your version. Uh, But while you're turning there, uh, there there's an interesting phenomenon that kind of uh, took the world by storm, or at least took some millennials by storm, in uh, 2020, in the midst of the pandemic, and that is something called Zillow scrolling. Uh, Zillow scrolling. Zillow, if you're not aware of, is an app and a website where you can kind of see a map of your neighborhood and see all the homes that are for sale, uh, or for rent. And the fun thing is, like, they have collected like photos from previous listings, so even if the house is like off the market, you can still kind of peer into your neighbor's home. Uh, it's a little bit creepy, but also a little bit fun, because it's like, oh, I wonder what's going on in my neighbor's house. Uh, but this kind of took the world by storm, took millennials by storm. Uh, I know many of you are guilty of this, because I have talked to you about it, because I Zillow scroll. Uh, but they did a, a study recently, one organization did a study, and found that most people who use the app Zillow Uh, are not shopping for a home, they're just snooping on their neighbors. Uh, Now, you can buy a home through that, but you're kind of curious as to what's going on in your neighbor's home. Uh, Because our houses and where we live tends to reflect a lot about who we are, and the things that you care about, the way that you lay your home out, the decorations in your home. Uh, Your home is a really important part of your life. Uh, It's where you uh, lay your head down at night where you eat meals, maybe some meals, maybe not all meals. Uh, it's where if you have kids, you raise your kids. Your home is a really important part of your life. Uh, and so our home obviously reflects some of our values and some of the things that we care most about. Uh, but have you ever thought about how your home actually shapes your life? Uh, how the layout of your home or the location of your home actually shapes you almost as much as you shape your home? Uh, for example, in uh, about 100 years ago, one of the most common forms of housing in our area was something that looked like this house uh, once it comes up on the screen. Uh, Most of you have probably lived in a house like this. Uh, You probably drove by a house like this on your way over here. Uh, This is sort of the Rust Belt special. Uh, There's a large front porch uh, and if you have lived in this home you know exactly what it's like on the inside because it's the same regardless of whether you're in North Akron or West Akron or East Akron. There's a living room, a dining room, a really tiny kitchen, and upstairs, there's like two or three bedrooms, and the closets are way too small. Because people 100 years ago didn't have nearly as the, the closets that we do, right? Now I look at a home, and I'm like, this is not enough space. Uh, my wife and I lived in one of these for a couple years, right? And it's, uh, they're all the same, but they all reflect something of the world in which it was built. Uh, for example, when this uh, house was built, air conditioning was not a thing. And so the front porch was so important, because in the heat of the day, that was your only source of relief, and so you would go out and you would hang out on the front porch. But it was also uh, designed, kind of pre or right, kind of around the time when cars were really becoming a thing. In fact, uh, a lot of people associate the uh, the rise of automobiles as the demise of the front porch, because now it was noisy, it was smelly, it was dusty. Uh, but a lot of people would hang out on their front porches. Uh, when Kelly and I lived in North Hill, we lived on a street with a lot of these houses, and we got to know our neighbors really quickly. Because everyone would just hang out on their front porch. So your house and where your house is and how your house is laid out shapes something about your life. Uh, now most modern homes look something more like this uh, on the screen here. Uh, this is from the city of Akron, so this isn't like I pulled this from California or whatever. Uh, this is from the city of Akron, but you'll notice the most central feature, the most prominent feature on the front of the house, is now a garage door. Now, just think about what that communicates, right? And this isn't to say if you have a front porch, you're somehow like a holier house than a garage door house. But what does that communicate? That communicates a value of mobility, that the primary way that I enter and exit my house is through a vehicle, which means I'm leaving my home and I'm going somewhere else, and I'm now coming back home through my garage, and the way into my house is now not a front porch, but it's an interior door that you have to get through the garage door in order to get to. See, our homes communicate something about what we value, what we care about, and what the larger world around us cares about as well. And you see, we typically don't think about these things, right? And especially if you're, like, buying a house right now, you're like, I don't care as long as it has a roof and I can afford it, all right? That's because that's the market that we're in right now, right? Uh, but typically, like, if you can afford a house, uh, or if you can afford to rent a particular place or whatever, uh, there's a few values that I think all of us have when it comes to looking for where we're going to live. I think one of those values is comfort. We wanna make sure that it fits our family. If we've got two kids, are they gonna be crammed into one room or two rooms? Uh, Does it fit kind of my lifestyle? Does it fit uh, the things that I care about? Can I relax in my house? Or we tend to think about convenience. Is it close to my commute? Is it close to some good amenities? Uh, How close is the nearest grocery store? How good are the school districts where the house is? And neither of those things are bad. I think it's important to have a home where you can relax and feel safe in. It's not wrong to value convenience. But I also think there's a shadow side to those values. By a shadow side, I simply mean we're looking over here at these things, but on the other side of those things, there's also kind of a reality that we don't like to think about. And that's that if I value comfort and convenience, I'm going to probably build fences. Maybe literal fences. Right, where I want to keep out uncomfortable things. I don't want my, dog do, my neighbor's dog doing his business in my yard, so I'm going to put up a fence. Uh, when I was growing up my in my, my parents' backyard, we had six houses that all kind of shared a backyard, uh, and there was no fences. So when we got a trampoline, it was like the best, the best moment for all of our neighbor kids. There's fences around, around all those backyards now. And again, there's nothing wrong with a fence. But we tend to value, when we value comfort and convenience, it becomes easy to kind of build up walls to protect what's mine, to protect me from uncomfortable realities or inconvenient people. And so sometimes we do this literally, right, with a fence or with an extra deadbolt on our door. Uh, But sometimes we do this at a larger level, uh, where we want to, maybe like HOAs, want to keep only certain kinds of people in the community. Uh, Or even historically, when uh, banking industries built fences around neighborhoods through the practice of redlining, Uh, where about 100 years ago, they looked at the the socioeconomic and the ethnic makeups of neighborhoods, and they drew fences around certain neighborhoods. It said some neighborhoods are better than others because there's more white people than anybody else in those neighborhoods. In fact, I have a screenshot of the redlining map from Akron, uh, at least a portion of it, the portion that I could fit on the screen, uh, where they marked off certain neighborhoods uh, based on... uh, ethnic and racial makeup, and uh, the green were considered better, and so they got a higher rating, so it was easier to get loans there, which meant that buying a home and gaining and earning wealth was easier for you if you lived in those neighborhoods. Now, the yellow and the red are considered uh, dangerous neighborhoods or unapproachable neighborhoods or neighborhoods that they didn't want to give lending to, and so if you lived in those neighborhoods, Uh, It was harder, more expensive for you to get a loan, and so it was harder for you to buy a house, and so it was harder for you to build wealth. That yellow star is where you and I are, uh, right here at Hillside and Newton. And so it's a way to build fences to protect certain communities from other communities. Why? Because we value comfort, convenience, and me. And when that doesn't work, then historically the reality of white flight is communities that had wealth, that had privilege, were able to leave difficult neighborhoods and go to the suburbs where a new generation of comfort and convenience was being offered. You see, these are all realities that are underneath the surface of your place, of where you and I live, of where you and I choose to live if we have a choice to live it, uh, of the values and priorities that we have in our community and whether or not we're going to be committed to a neighborhood or just kind of move kind of whenever things are more comfortable or more convenient somewhere else. See, in this series, we're looking at the life and practice of Jesus, how he lived his life, and then asking this question of if he wants us to follow him, which means not just have nice thoughts about him, but do what he did, how did he live his life? And so we're asking this question and looking at six practices from the life of Jesus that he invites us to adopt in our life that will lead us into the truth and the freedom of the life that he calls us into. Uh, We looked at three practices of how we love God. We looked at the practice of prayer, the practice of practice, and the practice of pace. Last week, we looked at the first of the three practices of how we love our neighbor, how we view people. We view people as image bearers, made in God's image, regardless of their background. And so, therefore, we care about real people. Uh, But today, we're going to look at the practice of place. Uh, Did Jesus care about his place? And the practice is defined in this way, that we commit ourselves to loving where we live and to seeking the good of our neighbors and our neighborhood. We commit ourselves to loving where we live and to seeking the good of our neighbors and our neighborhood. Uh, Now, we typically don't think of Jesus as having an address. Right? He, He didn't have an address where you could mail him a letter. In fact, later on, Jesus becomes an itinerant preacher. He just travels. He says, I don't have a home. Uh, he likely lived in tents and moved from neighborhood or city to city. Uh, but at the very beginning of his ministry, we find that he actually has a home. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 4, beginning of verse 12. In uh, Matthew 4, this comes on the heels of Jesus. He spent 40 days in the desert, uh, kind of being tested and refined for the ministry. It's the beginning of his ministry. In verse 12, we find that Jesus returns home. He comes home, and his home is in Nazareth of Galilee. Uh, in fact, we have a map, I've, I got a map of that area up here on the screen, Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth is that lower green star in the region of Galilee. Galilee is about uh, a little bit bigger than Summit County. Uh, so just to kind of give you some kind of context, that's kind of, he's like in the county of Galilee, and we could say Nazareth is kind of like, we'll just call it Akron. Uh, and so it's uh, the distance there between Nazareth and where he's about to go is probably between us and like Rootstown, Brimfield, a little bit further than that. So this is kind of the geography that we're talking about. But notice, Jesus, he goes home to Nazareth and Galilee. Uh, Now, uh, Galilee was not where you would go if you wanted to be a prophet. In fact, uh, later on when Jesus begins his ministry, uh, all the religious experts are like, there's no mention of Galilee at all in the Old Testament for a prophet coming from there. Uh, In fact, when Jesus begins calling his disciples and they find out that he's from Nazareth, one of them says, nothing good comes from Nazareth. That appears several times. In other words, that the town that Jesus grew up in was considered one of those towns that's like, you you don't want to go there. You want to avoid that kind of town. It became a liability, as he was calling his disciples. They're like, I'm not sure that I want to be associated with a guy from Nazareth. But this is where Jesus begins his ministry. But notice in verse 12, he goes home, and then he leaves and moves to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. But look at verse 14. It says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, Jesus moved intentionally. And his reason was because his place was part of his calling. So when Jesus thought about where he needed to be, what his location was going to be, it was wrapped up in his calling, his understanding of who he was and what his mission was. Now, what's the big deal about Zebulun and Naphtali? Uh, If you go back into the Old Testament, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali were territories of tribes of Israel, but they were the first two tribes to fall when Assyria, the world empire at the time, began the exile of Israel. In other words, these were the first communities impacted, devastated by this national tragedy. And so when he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali, Isaiah is saying in the very place where this problem began, this pain began, this grief began, that is where you're going to see a light dawn. Jesus chooses to go to Zebulun and Naphtali because it is there that God begins his ministry in and through Jesus. And his ministry is defined by verse 16, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. See, in other words, Zebulun and Naphtali, this area that Jesus went to, was this region of darkness. And that darkness is caused by, you'll see, the shadow of death. In other words, that these people had gone through pain. They had seen grief and suffering and sadness and violence. All the things that death brings, it was kind of looming large, and so they couldn't see light. They couldn't have any hope. It was just all darkness. I don't know when the last time was that you were actually just in like straight up darkness. Uh, sometimes I walk my dog down our, our street and one of our streetlights will be out. And like under that street light, it starts to feel a little dark. I can't see what's going on. And so I pick up the pace a little bit. Or maybe you're uh, one of those people who you, like, you sleep upstairs and so you turn the last light off downstairs and what do you do? You kind of scurry up the steps a little bit. Darkness is scary. right? Because I don't know what's happening. I can't see behind me or in front of me. And so Jesus comes into this and his calling is to be a light in places like that. A light in places where death has reared its head. A light in places where people can't see left from right or know what is right or what is wrong and, and, and pain and grief and sadness rule in this area. That is where Jesus goes. Now think about light. What does light do? Light doesn't create anything. It just reveals something. It just shows you what's there. It helps you then see clearly yourself and your surroundings so that you can make wise decisions, so that you can do the things that you need to do. That's what light does. And so Jesus' calling is to be in this place of darkness, shining a light, showing people the truth of who he is and who God's kingdom, what God's kingdom is all about. He goes into places of darkness to be a light. But in Matthew 5, he then turns it around and says, you're the light of the world. That if you follow me, that's your calling as well. That if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to lead us into places that feel a little shadowy. Places that have experienced the pain and the weight of grief and death. You see, oftentimes I like to gather up with other lights, right? We just have kind of like a light convention. Right? It's like, let's just bring our lights together. It's easier. Right? But the purpose of light and the power of light is when it's in dark places, when it's in places that are shadowy, right? And so we gather on Sunday to be, in a sense, recharged so that our batteries can shine light in our neighborhoods during the week. Not so that we can just get back to when we're gathered as lights in the light convention, but so that I can go live on my block as a light. That I can go show my neighbors what is clear and true about who Jesus is and what he's all about. You see, this is the mission and calling of Jesus, is to be a light in a dark place. And he calls us to do the same. And the good news of that for you is this, is that you may be in a dark place this morning. You don't know what is up and what is down. You're in a valley where you've experienced the reality of death. Like Darkness cannot separate you from God. His Son is coming to you, and He wants to show you light. He wants to show you His love. He wants you to see Him clearly. And so if you find yourself in this place of uncertainty and darkness, God hasn't lost you. He's coming for you. And that then leads to the second part of Jesus' calling in verse 17. It says this from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, I want you to see that Jesus' place not only shaped his calling, but it also shaped his communication. Uh, this is kind of a one sentence summary of how Jesus viewed the kingdom, how he viewed the gospel, the good news that he was coming to preach. He says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sentence in one sentence summarizes the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Why? Because it's saying that God has come to us. He doesn't say repent because the kingdom of heaven is on the other side of the mountain. You just have to get over there. He says repent. The kingdom of God, God's presence and power is coming to you right here in in the darkness, coming to you right here in your uncertainty, coming to you right here in your sin. God's presence has come to you wherever you are, but it requires a response repent. Now, we think repent, we think it's like a real, real religious term. It, just, it simply means turn around, that you're walking in the shadow of darkness, and light is back there coming for you, and so turn around and walk into the light. That's what it means to follow Jesus, It's to realize you're in darkness, to see the light that he offers you, and to turn around and begin to follow him. You see, this is the timeless message of Jesus for all people, for all time. repent, And follow him, turn and follow him into light and love and grace and freedom. It's the same calling for you, regardless of where you live, regardless of what your background is. But I want you to notice how Jesus helps people make sense of this. Look at verse 18. It says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets. followed him. Now, notice verse 19. Jesus' communication to them is, in essence, the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But notice, he makes that message make sense to them in language that they can understand. It says, follow me, which is turn around, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to invite you into a new kingdom where you're now going to live a life that's not about yourself, but that's about other people, and inviting other people to come follow me. And he says, You're going to be fishers of men. Now, what are they doing? They're fishers of men. Or they're fishers of fish, right? They're, they're, they're casting their net. Some of you who are fishermen says, Praise the Lord, right? Like they, they are fishing as he's communicating this to them. Now, if he had said, Follow me, and I'm going to make you like mechanics of the hearts of men, they'd be like, What in the world is a mechanic? But instead, he communicates to them in a way that they can understand. You can imagine that if Jesus were to uh, show up in like 1900 in the city of Akron, uh, the story would go something like this. He was standing outside the factory as rubber workers were coming off the line, and what would he say? He said, follow me, and I'm going to make you vulcanizers of hearts. Now I had to look up that term, so I'm not like a tire expert. But the vulcanization is the process where you melt down rubber and you form it into a tire. You see, Jesus communicated to them in a way that they could understand in a way that was immediately understandable and accessible to them. Like, if he was going to a group of accountants, he might say, follow me, and we're going to reconcile hearts to God. Or a group of artists, he says, follow me, and we're going to fashion something new out of the old material. See, Jesus communicates the message of the gospel in a way that everyday people can understand, so that they can respond to it with a genuine heart, with a genuine understanding, not borrowing the understanding of someone else, but in the language that makes sense to them. You see, this is where the message and the mission of Jesus meets real people. This is what uh, in, in uh, church practice is called contextualization. That's a super big word. You don't have to know it. There's no test later. It simply means how do people communicate, what do people care about, and how do we communicate Jesus to them in that way? Rather than trying to give people a dictionary and say, learn this and then listen to me, we say, what do people care about? And how can I communicate the message of the gospel to people in an everyday way? So think about this, your neighbor what would this message sound like to them? God has come near to you. Turn and follow him. How could you communicate that in a picture, in a metaphor, in language that they know and they understand? Not having to give them like a Google translator for Christianese, but in a way that they can see and understand. So rather than imposing a particular language on people or imposing a particular way on people, Jesus says, follow me. And I want you to understand who I am in a way that you can understand. So what would it look like for us to contextualize, to be this kind of community in this neighborhood, and for you to be that kind of neighbor in your neighborhood so that your neighbor can see here and understand the gospel of Jesus in their own words, in their own language, in their own metaphors? You see, this is why we planted a church here. We didn't plant a church here because we thought we had the best ideas about church. We didn't plant a church here because we thought the church down the road was too big and so we then need to get more space over here. We planted a church to be a church plant. And a plant is something that is planted into the soil, a seed that's planted into a soil, and then it grows and reflects the soil of that neighborhood. Right? That, that church planting is about being a community in a particular neighborhood to see this neighborhood Give shape to what the gospel sounds like and looks like in this neighborhood. You see, Jesus used this metaphor in Mark chapter 4. He said, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. It doesn't look very impressive. It doesn't look like much is happening. But it, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes a larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In other words, that this kingdom, when it is rooted and begins to sprout in a community, it leads to a place of safety and security. A place where people can come find refuge from all the things that burden them in life. They can find hope and healing in the name of Jesus, in this tree of the kingdom of God. That this is how God's kingdom works, a seed planted in the soil. Uh, One missionary, Charles Kraft, put it this way. He says, Christianity is not supposed to be like a tree that was nourished and grew in one culture and then was transplanted into a new cultural environment with leaves, branches, and fruit that market indelibly as a product of the sending culture. In other words, you can go to uh, Home Depot and buy a tree and plant it in your yard. But instead, the gospel is to be planted as a seed that will sprout within and be nourished by the rain and nutrients in the cultural soil of the receiving community. What sprouts from true gospel seed may look quite different above ground from the way it looked in the sending society. But beneath the ground at the worldview level, the roots are to be the same and life comes from the same source. See, this is what happens when we follow Jesus in our place, as we begin to plant seeds of the gospel. And you don't know what's going to come from that. But we know that God's kingdom is moving and this is how God's kingdom works. And that's why part of our practice of place, we chose today. Uh, to invite you to consider a new campaign uh, that we are launching as a church. Uh, Because from day one, we said as a church, we want to be rooted in this community, Uh, not just driving in and driving out and not caring about the everyday life of this community, but we want to be here in the Heights, for the Heights, for the long term. And so today we're launching a campaign called Rooted. Uh, And I want to uh, just invite you to consider the vision of this uh, with just a short video uh, we're gonna launch into this and then uh, we're gonna have more time this afternoon to consider this uh, over lunch. But here's kind of a promo of where we're going uh, with this campaign. Legend has it that about 100 years ago, there was an orchard planted here in this park between Goodyear Boulevard and Malaysia Street. As families flocked to Goodyear Heights at the height of the rubber boom, Families who bought homes here were invited to pick a fruit tree from the orchard and plant it in their own yard. A gift to welcome them into the community and to invite them to contribute and collaborate in this neighborhood for the good of all that Goodyear Heights had to offer. Now the orchard isn't here anymore, but that dream still is. The dream of a community where people love where they live, where they live, work and play with their neighbors and to create a vibrant community here in Goodyear Heights. When we first started Wingfoot Church, our hope was to be a church rooted in this neighborhood, not just driving in and out on Sunday, but to live, work, and play alongside our neighbors here in the Heights. We've bought houses, thrown block parties, and walked each street of this neighborhood with the hope of seeing a new orchard take root here. Not an orchard of fruit trees, but of life change, of vibrant community, of renewed hope. Today, our home at the corner of Hillside Terrace and Newton Street, what we call the Heights Center, is not only a home for our church, but also for other organizations and neighbors working for the good of our neighborhood. A place where you can find not just help with groceries, but how to cook good meals. Not just a place to go to church on Sunday, but a hub of community life where you can find help, make friends, and work together. It's becoming an orchard of all the good fruit that is growing here. In Goodyear Heights. Rooted is a commitment to be in the heights for the heights for the long-term flourishing of the heights for everyone. As we pay off our building, we'll be unleashing new funds for new expressions of Hope in the Heights here in the community. As we reinvest in our building, we'll be transforming it into a welcoming hub for all that the community has to offer. A place where you can find food, learn new skills, deepen friendships, and invest in the long-term good of our neighborhood for everyone. Join the Rooted Campaign and help us make this dream a reality. All right. So we're really excited about that. We want to invite you to stick around for lunch. Uh, as we talk about the details of what that looks like, and on theme, uh, there is also a root beer float bar. So if nothing else, come for root beer floats and find out more about that. It's been really exciting as we have launched as a church to imagine what this space could look like uh, and to see it come together through community partners, uh, through neighbors, and through uh, prayerfully just asking, what does God's kingdom look like here? Uh, But what does that mean for you? Right? It's great to talk about this at a huge level, at a big level, with videos and funds and that kind of stuff. But what about you? Where you find yourself? How can you live into this today? Uh, so I want to remind you again, the practice of place, what does it mean? It means that we commit ourselves to loving where we live. And to seeking the good of our neighbors and our neighborhood. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to live in Goodyear Heights to do that. It doesn't mean that you have to live in the best neighborhood or the worst neighborhood to do that. It simply means that you need to understand that your address is not accidental. That your location is part of God's purpose in your life. And so I want to just give you three practices from the life and the teachings of Jesus. In the very next verse, in verse 23, uh, as we see Jesus live this out, what did he do? Or the habits and the practices of his life as as he lived a life of intentionality with his place. Verse 23 says this, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So just, I think, three things that we can take from the life and practice of Jesus in this community. Uh, The first is the practice of relocation. Uh, Now, I don't mean that you have to move, although if God says, hey, it's time to move, you should probably say yes. But relocation is not simply a matter of saying, I need to move so I can love my neighbors. It's relocating your thoughts, your dreams, and your goals related to your neighborhood. To say, if my address is not accidental, if my address is part of my calling, then how can I reorient my thoughts, my vision, my intention, my relationships, so that I can care for my literal neighbors? Relocation is, is really relocating your attention. To say, if I live a large portion of my life in this location, at this address, on this street, on this block, with my neighbors, then how is God maybe inviting me to see my house as a beacon of light on this block? as a glimmer of the kingdom of God in this community, so that my neighbors can see and begin to experience the light of God's kingdom on this block on Tuesday, not just going to church on Sunday. So relocation is first, as Jesus does, he moves with this intent to say, my place is part of my calling. And this is good, because you can do this whether you own your house or not, whether you are renting or you're living in your parents' basement, or, I mean, even if you're homeless, you can do this. Your place is part of where God is inviting you to be part of his ministry. That you have in that location a set of relationships and connections that Jesus wants to invite you to see differently. That your place is part of his mission and purpose in your life. Uh, the, kind of the pioneer of relocation is uh, John Perkins, who pioneered Christian community development. Uh, and he, in his book, he talks about uh, three different types of relocation. Uh, the first is relocators, which are those who choose to move into a community for the intention and purpose of living among people. Uh, and I know some of you have done that as we play in this church. Uh, but the second is what he calls remainers. Remainers are those who could leave, but choose not to. To stay and to care for their community. And to offer what they have, even though bigger cities or bigger opportunities are calling them. The third is what he calls returners. And returners are those who maybe left for a season, but they return to care and invest in their community, uh, to put down roots again in the community that they've been called to. But the key is this. He says this in his book. He says it's possible to relocate our houses, but not our lives. If people are not involved in their new community, if they don't really know the people, if they never let their neighbors into their houses and never enter their neighbor's houses, if they are not intimately aware of the issues and struggles with which people are dealing, If they don't share tears or sadness and joy as the community faces failures and success, then they have not truly relocated. See, his point is this. You can change your address and still live a life detached from your place. But you could have lived in the same place for your whole life, and the invitation is to see your place differently. So Jesus sees his place as part of his calling, and so how can you see your address, your location, your place, as part of how God wants to move in your life and through your life? to be an agent of his kingdom. Uh, The second practice is the practice of conversation. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. Uh, Now, we tend to think teaching means like this, like you're listening to someone talk. Uh, But the teaching would have been very conversational. It would be talking about the issues of the day and and trying to make sense of them in light of the scriptures and in light of what God is doing. And So he's engaging in a regular practice of conversing with people about the everyday stuff that they are dealing with. And so engaging in conversation is saying, how can I dialogue or how can I be in the conversation or in the issues with my neighbors? Uh, and sometimes this is really simple, uh, right? Like sometimes we want to create Christian alternatives to the conversations, right? where I want to like, rather than joining kind of the, the city baseball league, I want to create a Christian baseball league. Which again, nothing wrong with it. But if we intentionally joined the city baseball league, we would be engaging in some conversations and maybe being light in a part of the community that needs light. And so sometimes it's simply saying, okay, the purpose of my life following Jesus is not just to group up with all the lights, but instead to find a place where I can engage, be part of the conversation, and get to know people. Because as we get to know people, that's how we will better understand how to communicate who Jesus is to them. How we'll be able to better uh, communicate to them who Jesus is and why Jesus matters. And so maybe it means joining A community center book club at the library or downtown. Maybe it means being part of ward meetings, community meetings, PTAs, the school district, wherever you are, is finding intentional ways to be a member of the community that you're called to and engaging in the conversation that's happening all around us. Because as we do that, we will then be able to better understand how God is already moving in this community. And how we can join him in that mission. And so where can you enter into the conversation? And like, don't, don't overanalyze this. Sometimes we try to make it this big, huge thing. Sometimes it's simply uh, like maybe I can walk my dog at a different hour of the day. Right? There, I realized a little while ago that if I walk my dog at like 9 a.m., everyone's really busy. Everyone's leaving or they've already left. But if I walk my dog around my block like as people are coming home from work, I see more people. Right, so there's a greater likelihood of if I'm going I'm to engage with conversation with my neighbors if I do that than if I'm like walking at like 2 in the afternoon when no one's home. So some of this is just saying, what's the rhythm of my neighbors? And how can I work in alignment with that rhythm to find places where I can engage in conversation with people? But then the last practice is the practice of invitation. Jesus preaches the gospel. He preaches the good news. And when he preaches, he is that preaching that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. In other words, turn and respond to the fact that Jesus has come to you. Uh, you see, here's the thing. It is possible to be a nice Christian, or sorry, a nice neighbor, uh, but not a Christian neighbor. Like nice neighbors are great. No one is complaining about nice neighbors, but being a Christian neighbor is not first and foremost about being a nice neighbor. Being a Christian neighbor means that I love my neighbor, and part of loving them means that I also invite them to know Jesus. And that's the difference. Like, anyone can be a nice neighbor. But a follower of Jesus who neighbors like Jesus' neighbors is going to offer invitations for people to understand Jesus more, to enter into a relationship more, an invitation to church or an invitation into your home, invitation to a community event where they can find out more about who Jesus is. Because Jesus doesn't call us to be nice neighbors. He calls us to be neighbors of light. Neighbors who say that God's coming near to you. And so how would you like to respond to him. And so invitation is finding the ways in which you can invite people further into relationship, further into conversation, inviting them into church, inviting them to hear more about your life with Jesus, so that they can see, hear, and respond to who Jesus is as well. Because bottom line, the gospel is God coming near to us in Jesus. That he comes to us in our darkness to show us the light to show us out of our sin and out of our brokenness and into wholeness and freedom. That he came to us when we weren't looking for him. And then he then sends us out to be lights as well. And so if we follow Jesus, it will lead us towards our neighbors. It will lead us into corners of darkness that we would rather not go to because that is where light is needed. Because the gospel is coming into our world and it is a light shining in dark places. And so where can we be, as Jesus said, the light of the world? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you came to us in the darkness. Now, we didn't know which direction to go. We weren't searching for you, and yet you came and offered us light and hope and healing. God, for the one who's here this morning and is uh, maybe feeling like they're in the dark, they can't see up from down, they don't know left from right, they're, they've experienced grief, and they feel the way of their sin. God, would you show them that Jesus is coming to them right where they are to invite them to know Jesus. God, may we be a community that is rooted, that is committed to following you at our address, whether that address is here in Goodyear Heights or in Stowe or Ellet or Highland Square or somewhere else. You have called us to be lights on our street, beacons on every block so that people can see the light of your kingdom and can follow Jesus there. God, we thank you for your grace that meets us, that changes us, and invites us to follow you. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.